Take Your Best Shot, Immunizations as Prevention, a conversation with Patty Austin. This webinar included a visual PowerPoint presentation. To view a video recording, visit the link in the description of this podcast. Good afternoon, and welcome to our series of webinars focused on bringing you information about COVID-19 related topics. The information in these weekly webinars is geared toward long-term care and skilled nursing facilities, but we encourage everyone who's interested to attend. My name is Kathy Caudill. I'm a communications specialist with Quality Insights. Today, we'll be discussing immunizations as prevention. And I'd like to introduce our guest today, Patty Austin. Patty is a quality improvement specialist at Quality Insights. She has been working in the skilled nursing arena for the past 29 years, starting her career as a nursing assistant and leaving the front lines as director of nursing. Patty has been with Quality Insights since 2016. She considers it a privilege to be able to interact with so many different nursing facilities to help create lasting change within their communities. Patty, thank you for joining us again this week. Hi, everybody. And thank you once again, Kathy, for bringing all of us together today to talk about a subject that is so very familiar, immunizations. As seems to be kind of our trend lately, it's an old topic with just a couple of new twists along the way. What we're not going to do today is we're not going to look closely at the recommended scheduling of various vaccines. We all have those resources available through the CDC to easily understand when we should be administering those vaccines. But what we are going to take a look at and talk about is what administering those vaccinations as recommended means for us. So without further ado, let's take a shot at this. So let's begin with what we know. We know that we begin to prepare for the October 1st flu season sometime in late summer. And we know that um, vaccination season is now fully underway. We can also see that COVID cases are on the rise and that we might be looking at flu season and COVID season converging. For that reason, at least until we have data that's going to lead us down a different path, from a process standpoint, it's easy to see why we would want to combine those two and consider this flu slash COVID vaccination season. But we really can't stop there because if we add in RSV as the third respiratory illness that has a winter spike time, we now kind of have a trifecta of respiratory illnesses that benefit from vaccination administration. But then when we also consider that all three of those respiratory illnesses have a risk of developing into pneumonia, we can also kind of assume that it's a great time to talk about pneumococcal vaccinations as well. That particular vaccination we do offer year round. However, the start of flu season is really the perfect time to make sure that we're not letting anyone slip through those cracks. So vaccination season has now moved from the flu pneumo duo to kind of the fearsome foursome of flu, pneumo, RSV, and pneumonia. As we enter October, we can sometimes see the early onset of those respiratory illnesses rising. And traditionally, we call that October 1st date, the beginning of our flu season. And history has shown us that kind of late December and then into January are typically our peak illness times. 
So if you're like me and you've kind of been in the industry for a little while, you most likely have the experience of that holiday outbreak. And I remember one year, probably around 2015 or so, I was literally putting on my coat to leave the building that I was a DON in at the time on Christmas Eve, about six o'clock in the evening. You know how it is on Christmas Eve. I was excited to get home and start my holiday. But before I could close the office door, we got our first confirmed flu swab back. So took off the coat, didn't end up leaving until sometime on Christmas Day as one after another after another positive results came back. Then, of course, it's the call to the health department, outbreak event reporting, line lists, cohorting, family notifications, all that kind of down and dirty fun stuff that goes right along with a widespread outbreak. And those were in the days before COVID. So you remember those pre-COVID days. People lined up to get the flu shot, right? You had a line of staff. Residents were asking for it. Families were asking when it was coming. People were waiting to be vaccinated. The only unvaccinated people in our buildings in those days were those with actual medical contraindications. And those people really wished they could get the vaccine because wearing a mask for eight hours was thought of as like misery. My, how times have changed, haven't they? Flu outbreaks happened even when our residents were fully vaccinated then, just like illnesses occur now, even when people are fully vaccinated. It's really the severity of the illnesses that we need to talk about. And we're going to talk about that a bit as we move forward today as well. But first, let me introduce you to our cast of characters for today. First on stage, we do have influenza and pneumococcal illness to consider. And as we mentioned, we are pretty familiar with these guys, right? Really, the toughest part of flu season in the past was making sure that we had our flu vaccine numbers ready to roll when our next annual survey came around. When we admitted residents, we secured their vaccination status. We gave them the pneumovax if they needed one. We documented their flu status and we gave it if we needed to. If we were in flu season and they needed it, we gave it when they were admitted. We had the information we needed to put into our MDSs and we were done. Then when that flu season actually started, we had our vaccines pre-ordered so we could administer that first week in October. We did our education sheets as soon as they were available. And we were ready to vaccinate our entire census and all of our staff in early October. While we were at it, we doubled down and we made sure we hadn't missed any pneumovaxes. It was labor intensive, no doubt, but it was really clear cut. Our MDSs were coded correctly. Our quality measures reflected 100% flu and 100% pneuma measures, and that was the expectation. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little while as well. Pretty easy. So what changed? That is the million dollar question. How on earth did we go from just about all of us having 100% on our QM flu and pneuma scores to many of us not even hitting 75%, in some cases 50%? We know that we can achieve that 100% target with accurate coding. So most likely, 
we need to have those conversations with the RNACs to make sure that we are coding correctly. And we'll talk about that in a couple of slides as well. Maybe the more important question is how did we go from people actually waiting for the flu shot to arrive to the refusal rates that we see today? I don't think we have a really great answer for that, but it is something that we need to continue to try to figure out. My hope is that as we move further away from the pandemic level COVID has shown us in the past and people start to see COVID and its vaccination in a more normalized way, that we can return to that pre-pandemic world that was so much easier in so many different ways. And just like that, we're talking about our next character, COVID. When we first met this character, if we're being honest, he was a little bit scary, wasn't he? We didn't know what to expect and he entered the room and just caused chaos. No one had met that particular virus before and our reaction to it was based in large part on that, the unknown. Part of our jobs is to figure out the why of COVID vaccine hesitancy, right? So like you, I've spent a whole lot of time thinking about just that. Why do people refuse? Sometimes when things are kind of stumping me a little bit, I take them out of their true context and I try to look at them through a different lens. So I'm gonna tell you what my COVID lens hesitancy lens is and see if it might resonate with any of you. So let's say that in your town, you hear that a new tribe of people has been discovered in Antarctica and they speak their own language that nobody understands but them. It's never been heard before. And they're migrating to towns near you. You hear rumors about how chaotic they are and the devastation they bring to the towns that they enter. They don't do things the same way that you do. They're foreigners in the true sense of the word and they're heading your way. Your town only knows what it hears and it begins to build fences to keep the invaders out. Your whole town's fearing the worst. And then somebody, some random person, plants a seed. That seed is wait. Nobody lives in Antarctica. Those stories can't be true. Somebody whispers. And that whisper spreads. And the next thing you know, that whisper turns into tear down the fences. Now your town is defenseless against that invader. And that invader comes right in, bringing chaos with them. That seed that was planted, the story of the invaders on the horizon being a lie, was easier for the town to believe than the idea of unknown chaos on the doorstep. The town took the path that seemed less scary when presented with two options, prepare to defend or deny it's happening. And I kind of think that's what started us down this hesitancy path. It was less scary to say that COVID and COVID vaccinations were fictional and they were all made up than it was to be confronted with an unknown that had serious outcomes. Now that we know our invaders are real, we again had choices to make. We don't speak the language of these foreign invaders. That new language is hard to learn. Learning languages is tough. So 
we can let chaos reign. Or we can accept that the town has changed and that in order to stop the chaos, we have to learn to put fear aside and learn to speak a new language. One choice is easy, the other difficult. And remember, change is hard. All change is hard. Much like overcoming the fear of a new vaccine that everybody keeps telling you. Remember back in the beginning, everyone's telling you, you have to take this shot. You're going to get sick and then you're going to kill somebody. And that was hard for a lot of people. The easy choice was to say, you know what? I don't want to learn the language or I don't want to take the vaccine. It required no change to say, I'm not going to do that because it's not happening. The harder choice is to accept that the town has changed and that the only way to reduce the chaos is to change as well. So for me, we have to find ways to overcome the fear of the unknown by making it familiar and less scary, and then the fear of change by making that change easy and making it the norm. And as if that were not enough, right? We also have another player on the field. We have RSV. This vaccine is new for us, and most of us, or at least many of our family members and residents, most likely associate RSV with children, but it can actually be deadly for our seniors. So let's take a quick look at RSV. It's another respiratory illness, and it presents often like a common cold, lots of times pretty mild, but in compromised individuals, it can lead to pneumonia, it can also exacerbate other respiratory diseases like asthma and COPD, CHF. Not only is our population at risk due to age and the fact that we reside in communal living environments, but things like heart and lung disease and weakened immune systems also increase the risk for our residents. So there we kind of have the respiratory illness all-stars, influenza, pneumonia, COVID, and RSV. They're here to stay, and we know what to do. All four of these illnesses have vaccines, and yes, they can all be given together. Yes, good infection control is vital to preventing the spread of each of these when they do enter your building. It can be really hard to stop the entrance of these viruses since many times that outside-in factor is outside of our control. But once it's in, then they're playing on our field and we do have control. So when we talk about controlling our house, our playing field, so to speak, we cannot try to mount that third quarter comeback, right? Those viruses don't announce themselves and say, hey, on November 8th, around 11 or so, we're going to come on over. They sneak in. Often we don't know how they entered. We just know that they have suddenly set up shop in our facility. We might know they're in the neighborhood, but we never know when they're going to announce themselves as visitors. Most of us probably have said out loud more than once that it's our goal to be survey ready every day of the year. We know that it is nearly impossible to have the results that we want during our annual Department of Health survey if we wait for the survey team to enter and then scramble to make sure that we're in regulatory compliance after we haven't looked at it for 12 months. We don't wait for the survey team to arrive and then send somebody out to grab the emergency water we need 
We don't try to do all of our chart audits while the survey team is doing their entrance rounds. Our goal is that all year round, we are making sure that our staff is educated on what the regulatory expectation is and that we're monitoring for compliance during that entire year. We're walking down hallways and we're making sure that we're not storing things in the hallways. We're ensuring that our fire drills are done every month. We're randomly temping food. We're doing all of those things. Imagine a survey if you tried to scramble and check up on the hundreds of state and federal regulations on the entrance day of your annual survey. You can't go back in time and correct things like missing QAPI meetings or educating your nurses on documenting notifications of change. Those are things you can't correct once the opportunity is passed. You might be able to correct some things before they fall under regulatory scrutiny, but in large part, you're now at the mercy of the survey team, and rightfully so. It's safe to say that survey is not going to go well. By the time the survey team enters, it's too late. We know this, and we prepare for it every single day. That same concept applies to good infection control practices. By the time the illness makes its entrance, it's too late to put the measures in place to control your house in the way you want to control your house. We need to be outbreak ready every single day, just like we're survey ready every day. To add yet another analogy to the mix, and I hope not too many of you are rolling your eyes out there, bad infection control practices are just as contagious as any of the viruses that we're talking about today. Allowing poor practice to go uncorrected is going to ensure that those bad habits become an epidemic in your facility. As an example, kind of outside of the infection control realm, when I was a young girl, only about a year into being a certified nursing assistant, I was working at a building that had a great team. It was the early 90s, and we had really just entered the days of moving using only mechanical lifts when we were transferring residents. We lifted residents with the strength of our bodies. We were actually trained on how to do that. We all had permanent assignments on my floor and the girls on my hall took pride in having the best hall. We had a great unit. Our residents were always up. They looked great. Our rooms were clean. People were happy. We were a real team. One of my residents was a really tiny lady. She only weighed 78 pounds. She had rheumatoid arthritis. So after decades of steroid use, all you had to do was look at her skin wrong and she would get the most awful skin tears. Happens that she was also my aunt. Her skin was so bad that we had to pad the Hoyer before we used it, pad the Jerry chair, and then still hope that we didn't cause a skin tear. She had RA so bad that her body was twisted. And instead of two people being required to use that lift during her transfers, we needed three people. She was terrified of the lift. She also knew how time consuming it was for us and she loved us. So often she would refuse to get out of bed so that she didn't have the fear of the lift and she didn't burden us. However, I fell into a terrible habit of going in, closing the door, and transferring her the way that we used to. I would pick her up, cradle style, and put her into her jerry chair. 
I knew I wasn't following the new mechanical lift policy. My nurse knew I wasn't following it. Most likely the supervisor knew I wasn't following it. It was, in fact, the best thing for the resident. What I should have done was gone through the proper channels and worked with therapy to make that change to her care plan. Instead, what happened was that a breach in the process that was accepted led to others in the hallway being transferred by people instead of a lift. After all, if I could do it, why couldn't everyone else? And that continued until a resident sustained an ankle fracture during a lift. And although the behavior had become pervasive on my unit, the nurse aide was fired for operating outside of the plan of care. Poor practice had spread as surely as any virus spreads. So the moral of the story is, is be ready for viruses to invade every day. Make sure that your expectations are being met every day. And when expectation or exceptions need to be made to those expectations, make them in the official way, not that kind of wink and a nod way that is much easier to do. Um, make sure that your practice is meeting your expectations every day and don't look away when they're not. The elephant in the room that we need to talk about before we kind of switch slides here is immunizing. When we're talking about immunizations, we're not only talking about our residents, we're talking about our staff as well. We know that COVID vaccinations and staff have been a tough ask for us. It may very well be time to move past the hard push that we've done in the past and try to find creative ways to normalize COVID vaccinations in the same way that flu vaccinations were normalized four years ago. We've talked about reducing fear and making acceptance of the vaccine easy. Remember that some of our staff have really planted their flag on that I won't be vaccinated hill. We need to make sure that as fear subsides and we begin to see COVID as the norm, we have to make sure that those people who have planted that flag have an easy path to take down the flag and accept the vaccination. Let's assume that we are vaccinating in the way that we need to. And um, from a clinical perspective, we have all of our ducks in a row. What happens next? To talk with you about MDS coding and quality measures, I'm gonna turn this over to Deb Bright. She is our Quality Insights MB MDS champion, and she has been gracious enough to spend some time reviewing MDSs and quality measures with you today. So over to you, Deb. Thanks, Patty. Next slide. So I know we've reviewed this before. This is these two slides on the MDS coding um, are two that have not changed um, on 10.1.23. So just a, a quick review, because I know we're running out of time here today, is it's real important to make sure, especially during the flu season, but also once flu season is over, that we are still looking at the history of our new admissions that we're taking in. Obviously, if we're giving the vaccination at the facility, we know that they've received it. We know the date that they received it. It's those new admissions coming in that we want to look at what is their history. So we still want to be asking 
all new admissions if they've had the flu vaccine in the community um, so that we can code the MDS correctly. If they don't know, we can look up if your facility has access to the Pennsylvania immunization system, you can look it up in there, you can call their primary care physician, talk to family members that may be their POAs, or you could also have your pharmacist look it up in um, the national database to see if and I guess I said Pennsylvania, but Pennsylvania or West Virginia has that immunization system that you can look up the, the history if they've received vaccinations. So it's real important if we know what, what the date, if we've given the vaccine, we document the date that we gave the vaccine. If we did not administer the vaccine in the facility, then that's where we're going to be picking one of the other options for why it wasn't received in the facility. Were they not in the facility during the this influenza season? Did they receive it outside of the facility? Were they not eligible? Did we offer it and they declined? Did we not offer it? Did we not have it due to a shortage? or none of the above. And I'm not really sure what would fall into none of the above, um, but that that is an option. Next slide, please. So with that is the quality measures. So this is an example of the short stay, but the long stay is the same. So how they calculate your quality measure for the influenza is they look at how many vaccines did you give in the community? or did you give at your facility? I apologize. How many did you give at your facility? How many were offered and declined? They also count how many did were received outside of the facility. So they're up to date. It's just that they got in the community, not at the facility. And how many were ineligible due to a medical contradiction? They add that all together that's your numerator. And then your denominator is how many residents have stayed in the building. So that's why it's real important to make sure that you get that history. You don't want to just code unknown or not offered, because if you do that, that's going to negatively impact your quality measures. You want to make every effort to find out when did they have it? If they didn't have it, did the, do you have that official offered and declination? or the in, um, ineligible due to a medical contraindication. This is just a tip sheet, um, just reviewing the MDS coding and the overview of the quality measure and ways that you can improve your quality measure by finding out their history. And then going into the, the pneumococcal, it's just the same thing. Um, we're gonna find out, are they up to date with the pneumococcal? Doesn't matter where they received it, but are they up to date? If they're not up to date, why aren't they? Did, did we offer and they declined? Were they not eligible to due to a contraindication or was it not offered? So this is all just a review. So this again is the quality measure. So this is an example of the short stay. The long stays the same way. They look at what, how many residents did you have in the facility? Were they up to date with their pneumococcal? Were they offered and declined? Were they ineligible? You add all that together, it should equal the same number. If not, that's where it starts to negatively impact then your quality measure. 
And again, here's just a tip sheet. We also took um, the small version that we have of um, kind of a decision tree on how you can determine if a resident is up to date with their pneumococcal. It also has the quality measure overview. And then if you go to um, the next slide, this is where we have the pneumococcal algorithm where you start at the top and have they received their pneumococcal, yes or no? And you just follow the decision tree down. It, it has all of the um, different types of uh, pneumococcal vaccinations, the Prevnar vaccinations, and you can just determine if your resident is up to date. There's also on that resource, um, the pneumococcal app where it's called the, the Pneumorex Vax Advisor. And if you go into that app, which you can put on your phone, you can put on your computer, you just put the resident's date of birth and then it just starts asking you a question. And basically it's electronically doing the same thing that this algorithm does. Have they received this? If they have, they're up to date or they go into the next question. And at the very end, it tells you if they're up to date or what they are potentially due for. You can print that out, share that with the physician, make it part of the chart, whatever you wanna do, um, to show that you've done your due diligence to make sure that they are up to date with their pneumococcal vaccinations. Patty? Thank you so much, Deb. And I know I rambled at the beginning, gave you next to no time to talk. I do apologize for that. But just a, a few more brief points to make. As we continue to talk about um, immunizations, we have to revisit the idea of vaccine hesitancy just for a second. Because we've been dealing with this issue for you know quite a while now, it's easy to fall into the mindset of thinking, you know what, that's just the way it is. There's nothing I can do to change it. Some cases that might be an accurate thought, but it doesn't relieve us from our obligation to continue to do what we have to do to attempt to increase the acceptance of vaccinations. On the screen right now are some resources from the American Healthcare Association and from the CDC that you might find useful in helping you to reduce that fear factor that some of our residents and staff are facing. And here are just a few thoughts that might help you to promote acceptance of the vaccine, um, including sharing the fact that flu and COVID are really two different viruses and that a person can become infected with both at the same time. Being ill with one will increase a person's susceptibility to the other. And we have studies that show that people who are ill with both viruses are sicker and that vaccinations will lessen the impact of those viruses. So if somebody told you that you had a 60% chance of hitting the lottery for a billion dollars, would you play? Those that receive a flu vaccination reduce the risk of illness from between 40 and 60%. Flu shots work. Nearly all of the ingredients in the COVID vaccine are also found in many, if not most, of the foods that we eat. COVID vaccines are safe, and they're more dependable and reliable than natural immunity. So there is a benefit to receiving the vaccinations at the same time, and the CDC agrees that they can be given together using different injection sites. Doing this might actually mean that you only have to experience those side effects, the fatigue and uh, muscle soreness from the vaccines once instead of twice if you were to spread out those doses. 
remember that our goal is to educate and empower people with the knowledge that they need not to unintentionally threaten or instill fear, right? Really, it's all about approach. Consider these two statements. If I say to you, you know, if you're unvaccinated and you get the flu and then you get COVID at the same time, you're going to get really, really sick. So you better get your shot. That is very different than saying when you're vaccinated against both flu and COVID, you're not going to get as sick as if you would have not been vaccinated, even if you get both at the same time. Creativity is just what might turn the tide on vaccine hesitancy and make immunizations as a preventative measure what they once were, something people are standing in line for and just another part of your year. And that does wrap us up for today. So again, thank you, Deb, and thank all of you for joining us um, for a bit of an unconventional talk about a subject that remains on the forefront in our facilities. My hope is that you were able to find some little sentence to spark some new ideas and how you approach immunization acceptance and strengthen the processes you already have in place. Patty, thank you for joining us again. And we thank all of you for joining us again. We hope to see you all back here again next week. If you would like to contact Patty Austin, you can reach her at paustin at qualityinsights.org. You can check out our other interviews at qualityinsights.org slash QIN slash multimedia 